You've got the plague. I got a fever. You've got the plague. Welcome to The Plague, the podcast where we look not just at the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, but at the societal plagues, the plagues created by human socioeconomic systems that make the coronavirus more virulent and dangerous. I'm your host, L.M. Bogat, broadcasting from my shelter-in-place bunker, and every episode we examine a different societal plague, a political or social pre-existing condition that cross-indicated with the coronavirus makes it deadlier than it could otherwise ever be. The coronavirus infects the human body, but what illnesses in our body politic make us more vulnerable? Economic inequality, environmental devastation, labor precarity? We pick a different social plague each week and talk with an expert about how that plague makes this pandemic worse and what we can do about it. As I record this message, COVID-19 pandemic numbers are spiking in the United States at a time when they are stabilizing in Europe and China. In response, our president has declared not a coherent plan to help save our lives, not a coordinated government response, but rather he has asserted once again that the coronavirus will soon, quote, disappear, and that we are about to, in some unexplained way, win a great, quote, victory against this virus. This is an open contradiction to the declarations of all relevant scientists and responsible health officials. The president has made wearing a mask a point of political division and hatred, rather than a common-sense tool that has been proven to help to slow the spread of this virus worldwide. As this crisis worsens, the president took the time to make hateful and baseless accusations against his opponents at political rallies in Oklahoma, Arizona, and, despite the protests of indigenous people who did not want him on their land, at Mount Rushmore. At these events, one could be doubly infected, both by the virus and by the disinformation coming out of the president's mouth. Notably, the president expressed more dismay over the embarrassing low attendance at his event in Oklahoma than he has ever publicly expressed over the death of his fellow citizens in the pandemic. We could call this a plague of burn-it-down partisanship, a pattern of behavior so nihilistic that it suggests a true contempt for the health and safety of our nation. The idea that the most important thing is to win elections by any dirty trick necessary, and, once you've won office, don't govern for the good of the country, but rather just keep running for office while in office with the same pernicious behavior. Don't do anything constructive, but keep tweeting and staging mass rallies where you slander your enemies. Make the country ungovernable by undermining the ability of the government to function, and reap the rewards of discontent caused by the chaos you have created. Obviously, we understand that this behavior is dangerous and destructive. This refusal to govern with any responsible policy and to replace that governance with slander and outrageous lies against your political opponents. It's particularly destructive, though, during a crisis in which tens of thousands of Americans are dying. 
where does it come from? What is the history of this deliberate dysfunction that is eating away at our civil society and at our nation's ability to deal with crises, foreign and domestic, in any competent way? And the response of Republicans to any development, not with coherent and effective policy, but with hateful slander, divisive distractions, and conspiracy theories. Is there something new going on in our time? Or is this just the way politics have always been? Our guest today, Professor Julian Zelizer of Princeton University, who you may have seen as a regular commentator on CNN, has a specific analysis of this destructive plague of burn-it-down partisanship. In his new book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and The Rise of the New Republican Party, he asserts that this plague is something new and alarming. Dr. Zelizer explains to us how it started and has some very clear and practical recommendations for what to do about it. Julian E. Zelizer is one of the pioneers in the revival of American political history. He is the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes Class of 1941 Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University, a CNN political analyst, and a regular guest on NPR's Here and Now. He is the author and editor of 20 books, including The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and The Battle for the Great Society, and the winner of the D.B. Hardiman Prize for the Best Book on Congress, Zelizer, who has published over a thousand op-eds, has received fellowships from the Brookings Institution, the Guggenheim Foundation, the Russell Sage Foundation, the New York Historical Society, and New America. He also co-hosts a popular podcast called Politics and Polls. Professor Zelizer, you've diagnosed for us a pretty severe plague in the body politic of the United States, which is something you refer to as burn-it-down partisanship in the GOP. And and you're claiming that it really got going with uh, Newt Gingrich, who was elected to the House of Representatives in 1978. Can you give us some more examples of how Gingrich operated? And also, how is this different from just the regular partisan rough-and-tumble of politics over the generations? Sure. I think uh, one of the things we really need to be cognizant of is that not all partisanship is equal. And in the 1970s, American politics was becoming more partisan, meaning the parties were more united, the parties would vote along party lines. But Gingrich was very different. He believed that his style of partisanship allowed politicians to tear down institutions, to ignore basic norms of governance, and to destroy the character of, uh, of opponents if that meant it would help them achieve partisan power. So one example I talk about in the story was in 1983 and 84, Gingrich and his allies in something called the Conservative Opportunity Society would make speeches on the floor of the House at the end of every day, and they would accuse Democrats of being weak on defense, of failing to support Ronald Reagan's war against uh, communism in Central America, and essentially claiming they were unpatriotic. And Gingrich, with the C-SPAN cameras rolling, would say, uh, do the Democrats have any response to the charges? And, and viewers would see that no one had any answer. It looked like Democrats were basically admitting that they were guilty. 
But what he was really doing was the, the chamber was empty. No one was even in the room. Hmm. So there was no one to answer. And uh, ultimately, the Speaker of the House then, Tip O'Neill, called him out on this, said it was like a McCarthyite tactic to destroy the reputation of politicians. But Gingrich loved it. Gingrich then turned it against the Speaker and said, look how corrupt the Speaker is. Uh, he's violating the rules, which only allow the camera to be on the person speaking. And he's using this kind of hostile language about me. And this is what's wrong with Democrats. So it was this kind of ruthless uh, partisanship that eroded the ability of members to even negotiate anymore. But he saw that as a good uh, tactic and as a necessary strategy. So interesting, because when you do something like that in such bad faith, the people aren't even in the room, but people think they are, but they just can't answer. It makes it hard to then the next day make a compromise or a deal with someone who just did that to you in such bad faith. And that's, that's uh, exactly right. And, uh, you know, there were there were some older Republicans who at least warned uh, that that's exactly what would happen if you played politics this way. Ultimately, the, the parties wouldn't only be far apart on issues, they'd be far apart in terms of their ability to interact with each other. And Gingrich would tell Republicans who said that to him, so be it. Uh, civility, bipartisanship, those are just the things that keep us out of power. Mm. And some of those might have to go. And he just kept moving forward with one tactic after another that just created a totally toxic environment in Washington. Mm. I mean, there's even something qualitatively different. It's like if you, if I think about this as performance art, as it were, or theater, um, Ronald Reagan certainly uh, got his points across and told his stories. And sometimes they weren't uh, factually accurate. But he was the one who er earlier, maybe before Gingrich, would just be more dramatic. And they, his, his advisors would decide what's going to dramatically be in the background in this shot. You know, we're going to have boxes of... Uh, of products being uh, manufactured in America behind you. You know, that kind of like a good TV setting the stage kind of dramaturgy. But that, as questionable as that may be, turning it into a bit of a Hollywood presidency, is qualitatively different than just open deception. Like the other people aren't even there to respond, but you think they are, that kind of thing. Right. And, and so you have, that's exactly right. And so it's, it's open deception. It's open deception with the intention of, of basically decimating what the public thinks of public servants. And, and, and it was even the language he used. Uh, I end my book by talking about this memo that a conservative group that Gingrich headed, GOPAC, sent out. And the memo basically told other members of Congress how to speak like Newt. That's literally mm -hmm. what the memo was about. <laughs> and they say that when you talk about Democrats, the words that they should use were corruption, traitors, sick, radical, pathetic. Uh, and, and the point of the memo was use those in speeches, use those in television. That was taking what you're saying with Reagan and his line of the day to a whole new level. Mm, indeed. And, and now I think some of Gingrich's uh, position was, well, we've got to fight dirty in order to win right now. Um, was that true? Did the GOP back in that day, like they couldn't win in a fair fight or was that just his perception? Well, I mean, the, the way that he comes about is an era when Republicans hadn't controlled Congress really since 1954. So for many decades, they were the minority party. Uh, and for conservative Republicans like Gingrich, Reagan's presidential win was a first. It was the first time a right-wing 
Republican had won. So uh, in his mind and the many and the minds of many Republicans on Capitol Hill, their party was basically a permanent minority. Uh, so he said, and many moderates like Olympia Snow agreed with him in the end, that these tactics were necessary to win power. Uh, so was it necessary? I don't know. That's a counterfactual. Mm -hmm. um, and, and maybe sure. there had been other ways to win, like Reagan trying to find issues that could build a coalition. Uh, but equally important, the costs were very high. And the costs were apparent at the time of what he was doing. And so he does ultimately win power in 1994. Uh, but, but the consequences of the way he does it are severe, and we're still living with them today. You know, it's interesting. I actually remember in 94, the freshman uh, uh, Congress people coming in with the new right, with Gingrich's taking over the House. They were given binders with instructions of how to do this, you know, and like you said, how to speak like Newt. And one of them got um, leaked, I guess. Someone shared it with the press. And I do remember that the, the quote that I remember. So these are the new Gingrichite, uh, new, new group of Republicans coming in. We finally took back the House with these tactics. And it was one of the quotes I remember is it said, remember, it's not your job to educate, it's your job to win. So we're not trying to educate the populace to come around to honest conservative ideas of small government or strong military, you know, the, the things that are, you know, legitimate conservative values. Um, but actually, we're not trying to teach the public and then win them over in a, in a rational dialogue. We just need to say whatever we need to say to win. That's exactly right. And, and Gingrich didn't even care. It wasn't simply educating the public. He didn't really care about legislation before mm. he was speaker. He was one of these members. He was open about it. He didn't serve on committees, really. Uh, he didn't do much work on bills. And that was just not of interest to him. Uh, he put everything uh, in having uh, a way to get Republicans to be the majority party and to have a Republican Congress that would be able to move Ronald Reagan's bills. And so some of the traditional functions didn't matter to him. And, and what was important is he becomes a leader by 1989, rather than just a maverick on the sides of the party, right. that whole mentality wins, wins over. So educating the public was not something he really cared about other than education that would persuade voters to vote Republican. I see. Right. Uh, now, some would claim, I have to ask, you know, uh, it's a perception for some folks. Well, all the politicians are the same. Both sides are the same. They're all the same. Is that true? Or can you break down how that's not true? Yeah, there's a, there's this thing political scientists talk about, which I think is useful. And in my book is a narrative about how this happened. It's called uh, asymmetric partisanship. And it mm -hmm. means that, sure, Washington has become more partisan. Members tend to vote uh, based on what their party wants, and there's fewer moderates in Washington, and, and both parties are, are more willing to uh, prioritize uh, partisanship. So that is all true, but the Republican Party moved in a much more extreme direction. Uh, in terms of policy, the Republicans since the 80s moved much further to the right than Democrats did to the left. Democrats remain today a much more divided party. And then in terms of process and governance, Democrats still, to this day, and certainly back in the 80s, believed that you had to weigh that with the imperatives of partisanship. And there were always restraints on how far they were willing to go because Democrats never wanted to 
reach a place where governance was impossible because this is a party that believed in government. Mm. Uh, and so Gingrich was willing to use tactics that were very different than what the Democrats were doing. And then, you know, the book revolves around his bringing down the Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, okay. uh, who never violated any formal ethics rule, who never broke any law. He just did things that were a little untoward or shady, mm-hmm. things that, you know, members of, of Washington do. Uh, they, they were just part of the culture, including Gingrich. But he used that to basically criminalize this guy and force him to step down from power. That's a different kind of partisanship. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think it's essential to understanding that difference if we want to know how Washington came to be the way it is today. Right. I mean, I can see how this has echoed down to our current moment. All of these techniques have, if anything, proliferated and been more weaponized on the right. Uh, As long as I just keep accusing you, it doesn't matter if you're actually guilty. Like with Jim Wright, a major speaker of the House ended up having to resign, having not committed the crimes Gingrich accused him of. That's pretty powerful stuff. That's right. I mean, it's an old McCarthyite tactic uh, that Gingrich very much employed. And the tactic is throw the accusations out there. He understood that the modern media, uh, in ways that wasn't even true in the 50s when Senator McCarthy was doing his stuff, uh, would probably repeat them, they would investigate them, they would report them. And, And that was all that mattered. Once accusations are out there, Gingrich understood the damage was done. And even if there were rebuttals and corrections later on, no one would be paying attention. And again, the difference with Joe McCarthy and Newt Gingrich was McCarthy by 54 is essentially purged out of the party. Gingrich, 1989, is elected minority whip and will ultimately become Speaker of the House. Right. Very powerful. Well, McCarthy made the mistake of going after the army, I believe, and uh, that was part of his downfall, maybe amongst other things. And uh, here we seem to have seen some resistance to total obedience to uh, our current president from the military recently, which I think is interesting. Uh, maybe that's that <laughs> strangely is some kind of a bedrock. But um, I want you, you mentioned that Gingrich was less concerned with practical legislation and actually doing that which an elected representative is supposed to do, help to govern the country in a responsible way. Um, and that just wasn't his, his concern. Um, what effects has that kind of governing by not governing and just sort of attacking, how does that weaken our political system or how does it affect our ability as a republic to function? It's devastating. Uh, I think if if uh, you reach a point as an elected official where partisanship always comes first over governance, you're going to have a government which uh, logically doesn't work very well. And so today you see Uh, As we have faced the pandemic, uh, repeatedly, the president of the United States and and many uh, Republican uh, governors, and we're now seeing the costs of this, have made decisions based on what would be best for the party. They've ignored science. They've ignored public health experts. They've ignored very practical measures um, that have been demanded, really, from experts uh, across fields to stop this virus from spreading. Uh, But if you are in this White House, for example, that's not how you think. Mm. Uh, And and 
President Trump's gone so far as to politicize face masks and to argue somehow that face masks are a product of radical political elements rather than just the most important way to stop this virus from spreading. Uh, and so that's a consequence that you could see many decades later of the trade-off that Gingrich insisted his party should make. And we're living in it with it, uh, not just through dysfunction, but an enormous death toll and possibly a second shutdown of this country. Right. As, as the doctor said, let's not talk about a second wave. We are still in the first wave because we haven't handled it right. And I suppose this applies to other crises, too. In other words, the same problems that hamstring the republic when it's trying to deal with the COVID pandemic. We've elected the fox to be president of the hen house, in a sense. And um, we don't have uh, the tools aren't being used that we have to handle crises, even such as foreign powers interfering in our elections um, or other problems with the economy or politically that come up. So it's not just about the pandemic, I imagine. Not at all. I mean, you can see with with an issue like criminal justice reform, mm. there's many areas in which it would be very possible for even a conservative Republican president to put forth serious measures to address uh, police brutality and police violence that would win the support of libertarians, that would win the support of suburban Republican voters. Uh, where uh, you know a lot of public opinion suggests this isn't really an issue that you either uh, reform or ignore. But President Trump, it's not playing that game. He's just politicizing this. He's explicitly playing to white backlash politics through his Twitter feed. Hmm. Uh, and as a result of that, it, it, you know, his party listens to him in Washington, and it becomes very hard to have actual legislation, whether it's about defunding police or whether it's about reforming policing, that can really be considered. Um, right. And and so it, this, is, this goes across issues. And you saw it, one last thing is, yeah. uh, I argue that the Tea Party, the Republicans who win in 2010, when Obama's president become the new uh, powerhouse in Washington, they were also um, basically uh, students of, of Gingrich. And one of the things they do when Obama is president is they take the most routine decisions that you make in Washington, passing a budget, raising the debt ceiling, which allows the government to pay for what it's promised to pay for, and they politicized it. They were willing to shut down the government as a normal part of budget politics. They were willing not just to threaten uh, they wouldn't raise the debt ceiling, which would send us into default, but they were willing to go there uh, mm. if Obama didn't concede. And all of that is not simply about grand issues such as race relations or a pandemic, but the most basic things that Congress has to handle in the ear of Gingrich are, are, are totally politicized. Wow. So when you say burn it down, you know, burning down the house as the title of your book, the metaphor holds strong. It's like, look, if you don't do what we want, we will actually burn this thing down instead of co-govern or govern in a responsible manner. That, that's exactly right. And that, that's why I used that title. Right. And I think it, uh, it, it was, it, what, what was amazing studying Gingrich and using his archives, which are the heart of the book, is mm -hmm. he's a very smart person and he's very cognizant of exactly what you said. And he was essentially willing to tear down uh, the city of Washington and, and everything it does 
for that basic purpose. And he was told, don't do this. He was warned, don't do this, but he was willing to do this. And you burn down the house to win power, uh, but then you're, you're basically living with a, a government that uh, just doesn't work. And that's okay if you're a Republican. I mean, that's a, a basic part of the story that we have to remember. Right. Well, I suppose it, it, it proves the point. If you want to, if you have an ideology that says, well, big government doesn't work, or let's just say government doesn't work, all you have to do is get, be in charge and do a horrific job, run up the deficits, put people in charge of departments that they don't believe should exist. <laughs> and sure enough, you'll, you'll show pretty quickly that the government doesn't work and confirm your own uh, ideology <laughs> by mismanaging. I suppose. That's right. And that's why back to earlier in our conversation, people wonder, and, and it was something I wanted to understand in the book, is why don't Democrats do exactly the same? Why, don't, why are they always resistant mm. um, to the same measures? The book uh, ends with Jim Wright. He resigns on May 31st, 1989, first Speaker of the House to ever resign. Mm. And he gives this incredible speech on the floor. It's worth watching. You can see it on C-SPAN. And it's basically saying, I didn't break any laws. I didn't do any of the things Gingrich is accusing me of. Um, I might have had bad judgment here and then, but not like, you know, not in an anomalous way. But he ends the speech by saying, please, to both members of the party, stop. He says, if we continue with this kind of partisanship that has emerged, um, we will be engaged, he says, in a kind of mindless cannibalism which will just destroy this entire institution. And the premise of what Wright did in the speech and in resigning was that if he resigned, things would go back to normal. That if he resigned, he would give Gingrich what he wanted and Gingrich would calm down and walk away and Democrats wouldn't have to uh, be vindictive and strike back. And what he didn't get was, you know, he was just a pawn. Gingrich didn't care that he resigned. He was not intending to stop at all. Mm. But Democrats weren't willing to go to that place. And I think it gets back to this fact that Democrats are checked because they are a party that believes in government. And if you believe in government, you can't simply put aside governance and you can't do things that will utterly destroy how governance works. And, and this is the tale of the party since the 1980s. Right. This is not exactly Eisenhower's Republican Party. Not at all. Professor Zelizer, you've broken this down pretty pretty clearly, what the problem is, what the plague is. And clearly, it has metastasized since Gingrich was elected in 78 or became the Speaker of the House in 94. We're in 2020 now. We have a certain person in the White House. We have a certain party that supports him, even now to 85% or more, regardless of what he does or says. Um, and we're in a free fall in terms of the pandemic, in terms of our global prestige and ability to actually handle our issues um, and manage our government. 
Um, so here we are. What would you say are some good countermeasures, if any, to this kind of burning down the house politics? It's going to be hard uh, to just get beyond this, meaning um, the, the point of the book is if we focus everything on Trump and what Trump has done, we miss the way the party has changed so dramatically mm. uh, to its core and the way in which it's changed Washington that it's going to take a lot of hard work. I think uh, two things are most likely to bring us to a point where you see change. One would be an electoral defeat of the magnitude of what Republicans suffered in 1964 mm. when Lyndon Johnson just devastated Barry Goldwater. A real landslide election, uh, the kind we haven't had since 1984. I think that would help change the Republican Party uh, because the logic of partisanship is ultimately if things are being done that hurt the party, you have to change what's being done. Uh, and I think it would have to be that traumatic uh, jolt uh, to where the party has gone, to see new leaders, younger generation of Republicans say, we're just going to do things differently. Uh, we're not going to play by these rules. The second way in which this changes is reform. It's government reform, which we've only seen in mass a few times in American history, in the progressive era, in the 1970s, where we deal with basic institutional elements that allow this kind of partisanship to thrive. You have to deal, as some states have done, with the way districts are crafted and uh, really introduce nonpartisan or truly bipartisan uh, ways to draw up uh, House districts so that they don't perpetuate very partisan kinds of decision-making. You need mm. campaign finance reform that curbs the flow of money from single-issue groups, such as the NRA, which makes sure that members are not going to move away uh, from what the party dictates based on uh, the interest groups that they've aligned with. Uh, and it will be also, I would say, some non-governmental reform, mm. changes in certain parts of the media that have embraced uh, all-out partisanship like Fox News uh, as, as a way to talk about information. I think it will take changes in the boardroom, in the production rooms, mm -hmm. and in the editorial rooms. Uh, all of this is realistically the only way that we're going to get to a different place. Otherwise, whatever happens in November, uh, this is still the Washington that we're going to have for years to come. Right. Now, you mentioned the media, and I wanted to get into that a little bit. Um, because, of course, sometimes you say, I hope the media will reform themselves or be replaced by better media in competition or something. Uh, maybe that could happen. But I have noticed that, you know, you'll read uh, and every every society has its problems, obviously. But I'll read The Guardian, you know, the progressive newspaper from the United Kingdom. And um, they will just put a fact check, not just in the article when a politician lies, but in the very much in the headline of the article, just to make sure if you only read the headline, you're not confused. So they will just come out and say, Trump falsely claims that climate science is not real. You know? And then the article is about that. And I think, well, fair play. If we have peer-reviewed science in the world and we go with it for everything that we do, you can't just say, I don't like what climate science is telling me, so it's not real. Um, we can't function that way. So the Guardian... I, I guess it's okay for them to just say in the headline, what Trump is saying is not accurate. You know, another headline, uh, Trump without evidence claims that Obama was not born in the United States, you know? So they include in the title without evidence, right? Um, 
you know, you now a little bit increasingly you're seeing this in the U.S. Uh, media because they just are have been overwhelmed by the lie machine, as it were, but not to the same extent. And there's still a hesitancy. Is this a good or bad thing? Yeah, I think the hesitancy has been damaging. I think the uh, you know the the reporters and producers all I think many who have very good intentions wrestle with how do you cover this era of politics. I think mm. President Trump has magnified the problem. It wasn't as if it didn't exist already. There was a lot of talk, for example, in the Obama years. How do you talk about what Republicans are saying on climate change? Do you report it as, well, there's two sides of this debate going on, or do you report it that one side is simply not telling the truth about climate change and ignoring the consensus of the scientific community? And how do you do that without losing uh, any semblance of objectivity or simply becoming uh, one more element in the in the partisan wars? And mm-hmm. I think reporters are trying to figure this out. Uh, I think they're becoming aware of the kind of games that Newt Gingrich through Donald Trump play uh, with with the media, uh, and um, it, it's hard. I think fact-checking has certainly become a little more pronounced in the American media, the kinds of stuff The Guardian does. You see a little bit more of, even on TV sometimes when President Trump is speaking, they'll run uh, basically a fact check as he's speaking, so you can see what's true and what's not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twitter tried this a little bit uh, with commentary on what the president was saying. Right. Uh, but but it's really difficult, and it's not simply about uh, fact checking. It's about describing what is happening in accurate language. So reporters have wrestled. What do you do when the president of the United States is just lying? You say he's a liar. Uh, or if you can't glean his intentions, do you have to use a different kind of word? You talk about partisanship by saying things are partisan and the parties are having trouble reaching deals, or do you say the Republican Party is so extreme uh, that that's really the driving problem right now in Washington? And that's not a partisan position. It's actually accurate reporting. Um, so I don't know in the end where the media goes. I think they are, though, as a result of Trump being so extreme on all of this, wrestling with with how do you do this. And uh, they're going to face this in the campaign because Trump will cap. He he loves to capitalize on the media and he's going to try to get free airtime and he's going to try to really spread the most toxic messages, especially as he gets more desperate. Um, And reporters are going to have to figure out what do you do? Uh, without becoming partisan, you don't want to do that. But how do you report accurately, like you're seeing in other countries? Right. No, very good. And and maybe and this issue that I'm about to ask you about maybe springs from a media culture fueled by Fox News and other uh, commentators on the radio. Uh, one of whom recently got a Congressional Medal of Freedom, I believe, uh, which was incredible. Uh, Rush Limbaugh. Um, there's an asymmetry of partisanship in the parties, as you point out. Is there an asymmetry in the bases or the greater political cultures of both sides? And what I mean is there seems to be a, a, a different, a double standard in terms of what will be a scandal on either side, on left and right, a scandal asymmetry. And especially because in the sort of character assassination politics of burn it down practice that you've been describing, um, scandal is part of it, accusing people of doing something that's illegal or unethical. Um, of course, Trump is trying to enlist foreign leaders in manufacturing scandals about Joe Biden, as we have found. Um, 
and then the it seems that there's a different standard um, on the left slash amongst the Democrats, not all of whom are left, um, a scandal can be a problem. And I'm just wondering to what extent on the on the right, it does seem like there's much more of a tolerance for scandalous behavior of your guy, right? When your guy is caught doing things, but when the other guy does it, go after him. And right. even and, using Newt Gingrich as a stand-in for this, and obviously, as we're saying, Trump and his generation are sort of the metastasized version of Gingrich with even more power. Um, you know, Gingrich was, his behavior to his various spouses was horrific, you know, while he was the moral scold uh, of, uh, of politicians he was trying to ruin, his behavior, you know, famously was, uh, was outrageous. Uh, but that seemed to still work. He never paid a price for that that I'm aware of. And certainly some uh, conservative folks have have paid with their careers for scandalous behavior. I don't want to say it's never happened. But at this moment in 2020, for example, it does seem like at least amongst the bases, there's an asymmetry of standard. Does that? I think that it's 100% true. And it's not unconnected to the idea that if you have a party that places partisanship above all else, they're going to be much less willing to sacrifice their members when caught up in a scandal unless they have to, unless it becomes politically unbearable to have someone in the party. Gingrich was guilty of this all the time. I mean, he had a life that was totally at odds with the religious right in the 80s that was calling for moral reform and moral standards. You know, he, he was someone notoriously uh, who, who had affairs and, and who didn't live by those principles. He was also, while he was bringing Speaker Jim Wright down uh, for unethically selling uh, bulk books to uh, interest groups, even though technically many members of Congress did that, they were allowed to do it. Hmm. Uh, he himself was involved in a book scandal, literally, <laughs> uh, about how he sold a book and the way he raised money to promote a book. And this came out during the scandal I write about. And what was amazing, he didn't care. He just basically said that it's different. That was his whole explanation. And It's and different not, because I say it is. I, I can't explain That's exactly right. And <laughs> what was interesting is the two parties respond differently. Republicans at the time, they don't make a big fuss of what Gingrich is doing. I mean, this is in the press. There's op-eds about it. Right. And he ignores it. And they ignore it because that's the logic of tough partisanship. Whereas Democrats sacrifice Jim Wright and they tell him privately, step down or we won't support you if we have to vote on this. And I think that story continues through this day. And it doesn't mean that Democrats are always wrong in being more sensitive or responsive to ethical problems. There's a good element of that. They want more accountability for leaders. But I do think sometimes the party overreacts and moves much more quickly without thinking of what damage will this do to the Democrats uh, more broadly, and, and thus what are the consequences for the country. But I think that asymmetry you're talking about, that fundamental difference, is also cooked into the different kinds of partisanship that the two parties embrace. Right. These are infused with each other, asymmetri asymmetrical partisanship and asymmetrical standards of behavior and uh, acceptance from the base. That makes sense. I mean, one extreme, I don't know how you feel about this, but um, Trump is, let us say, not a godly man in his behavior uh, by any Judeo-Christian standard, if I may go there. Um, 
but he has it's it's declining now but he has support amongst conservative evangelicals and the phrase i have heard is well he's an unlikely vessel which is a quote from scripture like an unlikely vessel will come to do the lord's work so in other words if trump had perfect behavior they would say see he's very godly we will support him because he his behavior with women and with uh, people of different races and uh, the way that he stirs up hatred is pretty bad they can go flip the other way and say well he's an unlikely vessel so either way they get to support him uh and i think that's an interesting trick of of, uh, of a very loyal base yeah and evangelical uh christians and the religious right they've they've really been this way since the 80s they, they're incredibly pragmatic uh, mm. reagan himself in the 80s not just gingrich but reagan didn't live a life that you know was very church going and uh, he didn't even really pretend to but they made a calculation back in 1980 that Reagan would be their vessel. Reagan would be the politician who finally brought them into political power. Right. And they keep making that deal. And they made the deal in 2016. Mm -hmm. All that Trump did was promise them a list of appointees for the federal courts. And that was enough. Yes. Uh, and they're willing to hold their nose at, at everything else. So even some of the interest groups, as you're saying, it's interesting, they also subscribe to this calculation. It's not simply partisanship over governance, it's partisanship over principle. Mm. And then you have, I mean, to my mind, again, thinking in terms of performance and live events, uh, my bias of interest, you have someone who's the unlikely vessel, uh, tear gases people who are progressive and, you know, just uh, Americans protesting, uh, so that he can pose in front of a church holding a Bible awkwardly. <laughs> and, right. and there's your uh, religious imagery, uh, of this administration. Uh, yeah, that's exactly that cat, that whole horrible incident really just captures the whole story, um, mm. from beginning to end, uh, from the theatrics of, of the religious element of his belief to the levels he is willing to go uh, and his party's willing to go because none of them really said anything about what happened uh, right. on that day. And right. Well, um, they're always late for lunch, aren't they, when they don't want to answer a question? I think that's, that's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, along these lines, uh, Julian, and this is, this is really fascinating where we're getting at, there's a, there's a um, ability to project imagery it does it's almost like a modern or postmodern advertising where the signifier and the signified are, are utterly separate i can sell you real estate with wonderful images of models you know running around somewhere and then you want to buy the car or the real estate yeah. and here it's like well what we're looking at has nothing to do with a policy reality or statistics or information you need to make high quality decisions as a voter but they're for some people compelling button pushing ish images let's create the image not the reality uh the bad news is that of course things like covid don't watch fox news and they're not influenced the virus is not influenced by the propaganda and even things like you know bad actors on the world stage like putin he's he's doesn't become our friend because we say he's our friend um, and say it's good to be friends with russia um, so, so is there a pushback from reality that can happen even in this environment? You've pointed out that the media needs to get a little more attached to reality to give 
uh, pushback. Um, there needs to be a little bit more tough-mindedness in the resistance to say we're going to call this out and we're going to act. We're going we're to be a little tough when we need to be to get to get our policies through. Uh, is there ultimately an underlying reality that if you keep pretending it's not there and you keep burning down the house, that a backlash could happen? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, and I mean we'll see. The pandemic is the test, meaning mm. uh, the pandemic doesn't care about uh, any of the theatrics in Washington. And right now, as we record this, we're seeing that uh, even with the president saying it's over, it's not over because the numbers are spiking in many of the states that are reopening in poor ways. Uh, and, and so this, if, if there was a reality that would shake the country, the pandemic is it because the just amount of did not i mean the death is horrendous the illness is horrendous and the sheer disruption of our lives yes. from the economy to our education is so severe and polls that came out in uh, june late june as we're talking um are showing that in battleground states uh, as of now many white voters who have been the key to president trump's coalition are saying they won't vote for him. They might vote for Biden or they might just not vote or vote for someone else. Mm -hmm. And they explain why. And it's about how he has handled uh, both the pandemic and these racial justice issues mm -hmm. uh, and that there is no leadership there. So, so there is the possibility this has been so severe it causes the backlash you're talking about. That said, I would caution we're in the early summer, and by late summer and early fall, you're going to see President Trump mounting the kind of campaign that is so toxic and so mm -hmm. devastating that we probably can't imagine what it's going to look like. And that can range from formal investigations into Biden uh, to unleashing in social media conspiracy theories and fake claims about uh, his opponent and the party that start to stick and start to circulate uh, really vicious stuff to voter suppression to right. uh, we can be in the middle of a second wave in November and in many states people can't vote and we did nothing about mail-in voting and that benefits the president so my mm. point is the backlash possibility is there we actually see it in some poll numbers but we'll see uh, the the tools of the partisan president are immense if a president is willing to use all of them and we have a president who's willing to use all of them to retain power. Right. The voter suppression is really troubling. It's, it does seem to me that we, uh, the conservative Supreme Court chose to get rid of the Voting Rights Act, saying, well, these, uh, these southern states, uh, yeah, they used to not let people of color or black people especially vote, but that's over. Let's get rid of the Voting Rights Act, essentially. I think they've proven that they're doing it again, and you can bring back the Voting Rights Act. I think yeah. they, they've, they, we've tested that theory out. We got some data, and it turns out we do need a Voting Rights Act again. From We need to go literally back to the mid-60s and bring back that law. Um, so as a final uh, point before we go to your, your reading, uh, Julian, I wanted to just ask you, let's say there is, you know, all of these things happen, as you described, there's going to be the toxic campaign fed by millions of dollars of, of money that we don't even know where it's coming from. And yet, let's say Trump still loses and the Democrats get the White House and at least 50 senators who won't break ranks. And the VP is the tide. This is the minimum situation. Mm -hmm. um, now they have a lot of damage to 
repair. They have to actually navigate us out of the pandemic because this administration's not doing it. They've got to try to bring back the economy with an even bigger challenge than Obama faced after the uh, the uh, economic uh, crisis that he inherited um, from another mismanager. Uh, so there's going to be so many problems. Uh, the gerrymandering, some of it's still around, the voter suppression, some of it's still on the books, um, all these other problems. You've got to push through an agenda do you have to get just as tough? You know, the, the Republicans at one point had 51 senators and they passed all kinds of things as if they had a real huge mandate, like really uh, or extremist agenda without mirroring the GOP in terms of Orwellian doublethink and blatant dishonesty. What's, can the Democrats just say, all right, we're going to push some very serious things through. Do you feel that that's, you know, in, in this partisan world, what do you think about that? They have to, uh, meaning they, they don't have to replicate the kind of partisanship we've been talking about uh, during this conversation, mm-hmm. but they do have to have very clear-eyed understanding of what's happened in Washington. And uh, I remember at one point, Joe Biden talked about resuming normalcy if he was president, and he was rightly criticized because mm-hmm. the normal is dysfunctional. Uh, and uh, I think Democrats have to remember that. So, so they did gain power, and they did have power uh, in the Senate sufficient to actually achieve change. I think a whole range of issues they will have to seriously consider from procedural issues like eliminating the filibuster so that legislation is actually possible. Otherwise, we're just talking about imaginary things, mm. um, to dealing uh, kind of with core uh, problems by uniting the party, making sure people within the party don't defect, uh, whether it's climate change legislation uh, or gun control legislation, they can run a tough partisan shop that isn't about destroying government. Um, From whipping up the vote to uh, being very clear with certain interests that they are no longer welcome uh, in the leadership camp. Uh, and I, I think that's the only way things are going to get done. And, and they need to be ready to do that if they achieve power. I mean, o- Obama had a very successful presidency. He was also criticized, though, that he didn't go far enough. He didn't ultimately understand what the Republican Party was about. Uh, and that meant that early on he sought compromise with Republicans who had zero interest in compromising with them. And he gave away things uh, rather than demanding things and, and put Democrats in a bad place. And and he didn't, as president, devote enough time to state races and to congressional races and making sure that Democrats built up their political muscle uh, on Capitol Hill and in state government. And if there's a Democratic president, they can't afford to make the same mistake or they will awake to the reality in a few years that the Republican Party might have lost in November 220, but they didn't disappear. Uh, and as Obama saw, they came back and they did so with ferocity that ultimately undercut some of the key goals that Obama wanted to achieve. And the same will be true now. I think we should all be able to see the problems that the country faces and the ways our government doesn't work. And, and if Democrats have power and want to claim that they will fix things, that they can't just bring a few kind of useless tools uh, to the job. They need to bring heavy machinery. Show a little bit of toughness in policy action. If anything, that can 
earn the respect of your supporters. Like, oh, you you mean it and you're willing to put political capital on the line and get some things passed and uh, as opposed to always seeming to seek for compromise that the other side in their political DNA, they absolutely refuse to work with you. We, we said Mitch McConnell, uh, Mitch McConnell said when Obama was elected, we're not going to let him pass anything. And uh, you can't work with someone like that. You have to, I guess the idea is to, to have an electoral victory, if possible, that's so successful that a new generation of GOP folks comes up just like Gingrich's generation came up with those tactics. Maybe a new generation will come up to replace them that will be a little more about governance in some way. Yes, and I think, you know, one, we can end with one memory from the Obama years, arguably his most successful piece of legislation was the Affordable Care Act. And it's Mm -hmm. a program that not only is the key to his legacy, but also is uh, an enduring piece of legislation that has survived conservative onslaught. And what's remarkable and people forget is the way that that passed was Speaker Pelosi insisted on using something called the reconciliation process, which prohibited Republicans from filibustering the bill and was a very blunt partisan tool to push that bill through Congress, even though Republicans refused to support it. And at the time, she was criticized for being too tough, too partisan. But in the end, it got the bill through. It had a huge effect on our health care system, imperfect, but still a significant piece of legislation. And it's a reminder that tough partisanship is often integral to achieving policy change. And you don't have to be a partisan in terms of tearing down the ability of government to work. That's great. And this is not burning down the House. This is actually trying to save the House, as it were, through some strong measures. Exactly. You've got the play. You've got the play. You've got the play. Guess what? I got a fever. You've got the play. You've got the play. Would love to hear a reading from your book, if you would. Perfect. And I'm going to, there's a a alarm uh, from a car on the street that's going off. Uh, so I'm going to just move rooms, unless you want the musical background. Um, <laughs> I would say that uh, metaphorically, we are in an alarming situation, so that would be fine. Right, so it does match our conversation, but let me read a little bit uh, of the book. And this comes from the introduction of the book. And uh, I start by talking about how Gingrich was almost, uh, he was almost uh Donald Trump's vice presidential pick. Uh, And he was one of the finalists, but ultimately, as we know, Donald Trump went with Mike Pence. Um, And um, I I start the book with that to show the connection between Gingrich and Trump. And then uh, I write this. After the interview ended and the crew removed his mic, Gingrich walked out of the studio. Whatever the next few days brought, he could feel as though he had won. Trump was thriving in the political world that Gingrich had created. Gingrich would always be Michelangelo to Trump's David. In Gingrich's world, Republicans practiced a ruthless style of partisanship that ignored the conventional norms of Washington and continually tested how far politicians could go 
in bending government institutions to suit their partisan purposes. Republicans went for the head wound, as Trump's advisor Steve Bannon said, when Democrats were having pillow fights. The new GOP goal is not to negotiate or legislate, but to do everything necessary to maintain partisan power. It was politically useful to engage in behavior that could destroy the possibility of governance, which rendered bipartisanship impossible and would unfairly decimate their opponents' reputations, then so be it. Gingrich-era Republicans were willing to enter into alliances of convenience with extremists who trafficked in reactionary populism, nativism, and racial backlash. The party kept counting on Gingrich's media-centered strategy, tailoring its actions and statements to push the national conversation in its favor, even if that depended on mixing fact and fiction and practicing a new brass-knuckles politics of smear. The style of partisanship that Gingrich popularized supplanted the bipartisan norms of the committee-era Congress from the 30s to 60s, as well as the responsible partisanship that had been promoted as an alternative to water by Watergate-era reformers in the 70s, when leaders in the rank and file were loyal to their party agenda while still adhering to formal and informal rules of governance. Gingrich's approach to partisanship was an entirely different beast. Nothing and nobody was sacrosanct. To be sure, this was not the first time in American history that conditions on Capitol Hill bottomed out. Congress had been through numerous periods of vicious partisanship, such as the decades leading up to the Civil War, when relations disintegrated so badly that bloody altercations on the floor of the House and Senate were regular occurrences until the government broke down into total dysfunction. While Gingrich's era of partisanship did not witness outright physical violence between members, what did take root was the normalization of a no-holds-barred style of partisan warfare, where the career of every politician was seen as expendable and where it was fair game to shatter routine legislative processes in pursuit of power. Even when there had not, was not an issue as monumental as slavery on the table. In Gingrich's era, a crippling form of partisanship came to permanently define how elected officials dealt with almost every issue, ranging from who could lead the parties to mundane budgeting matters to decisions over war and peace. Hmm. Of course, we're a country like any other country. We have partisanship. We have corrosive divisions, as of course, but that there's something qualitatively uh, unique going on that's pretty pernicious and pretty uh, pervasive. And I suppose we will we'll have to be working. We, we don't have a lot of time, do we? We have to actually address it ASAP. As Martin Luther King said, the fierce urgency of now uh, is mm. what we're talking about. The fierce urgency of now. Thank you so much, Dr. Zellers. This, this was great. And I, I appreciate you bringing this plague to our attention just in time to deal with it, I hope in November, but also well beyond. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Plague Podcast. I'm your host, L.M. Bogad. And for more information on my books and performance work, you can go to lmbogad.com. Sound design and music by Jason Montero and my other friend named Jay. <laughs>